0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu.
1: Hello, this is FEPS Talks, uh, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. My name is Lance Londer, I'm the Secretary General of uh, FEPS. And I would like to introduce our guest uh, today, Professor Dr. Jens Züdeckum. Um, who is uh, from the Heinrich Heine University uh, in Düsseldorf. He has been professor of international economics and um, also associated with the Düsseldorf Institute for Competition Economics. Beyond his academic position, Professor Südekum is also a member of the Scientific Advisory Board at the Federal Ministry of Economics. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Hello, awesome. It's uh, great to see you. And when preparing for this conversation, um, I was thinking about uh, the past period of uh, German economic debates, which appeared to be extremely complex, focusing on issues like uh, the debt break, the famous Schuldenbremse. bremse And we always saw that this is a very complicated discussion. I believe um, the the current discussion on uh, sanctions, economic sanctions uh, in the context of the ongoing war, in Ukraine might be uh, much more complex. I saw you have been uh, a very active um, contributor to the German debate on this. And that's why uh, my first question should be how you characterize this German debate, which in the last two months developed around the question of sanctions, because this is obviously uh, something that that has an economic, but also a political dimension. Uh, Some people probably reduce it to the question of morality, and how imposing sanctions can uh, solve maybe the military conflict, but also relations with uh, Russia in the long term. So uh, would you give us, um, to start with, a kind of summary of where you think we are, what are the critical issues, what are the main approaches uh, present in the debate, and um, we will build on that.
0: Okay, well, Yeah, so I mean, thinking about the sanctions, I mean, we're currently discussing the six package of sanctions at the EU level. And I mean, a lot of things have been done, thinking like the sanctions against the Russian central banks, against the oligarchs, against Russian banks, and so forth. And I think the, the sanction packages have been have been quite drastic already. And I mean, they will hit the Russian economy big time. Um, and we will see that in the data coming up. But obviously, the elephant in the room is the energy sector, and especially gas. Um, and I think the German approach... To all of that, and I mean, I have been kind of involved since the beginning following the discussions that the government um, was having also with other economists and advisors. I mean, there were some people very much pushing for going all in and imposing an energy embargo uh, very, very quickly on all energy forms, coal, oil, and especially gas. And the government was very hesitant to do that and was criticized from other um, intellectuals, economists, other countries, other governments for being hesitant for going for that energy embargo. But I think, especially when we're talking about gas, it would have been unreasonable uh, and irresponsible for the German government to uh, go for such an embargo because the disruptions in the German economy would just be massive. Uh, And the guiding principle of all sanctions was we're only uh, imposing sanctions that will hit Russia more than it will hit us. So I think the approach that has been taken was basically not to go for an embargo, to let the energy flows continue. And so far, Russia has supplied energy, so there was no disruption on the Russian side. But at the same time, um, the government was basically preparing for the scenario where basically Russia may just close the drain and disrupt energy flows, and was actively preparing to uh, basically substitute Russian energy. To be honest, I mean, it has been fairly successful. So mm-hmm. thinking about coal, um, at the beginning of the war, more than 50% of the coal consumption in Germany came from Russia. Now we're just back to 8%. So from 50% to 8%. Thinking about oil, we were at 40% oil consumption, came from Russia. Now we're down to 12%. It's just basically one very particular instance. is the refinery from Rosneft uh, supplying basically fuel to Eastern Germany and so on. That's the only uh, aspect that's left for basically Russian oil in Germany. And we're about to solve it. Um, So we will be out of coal, out of oil relatively quickly. So the critical thing is gas. Uh, That's just not possible to substitute in the short run. And I think it was a very good decision by the German government not to go for an embargo. As I said, it would have been irresponsible. But even there, we see progress. So we had 55% of all German gas Coming from Russia at the beginning of the war, we're already down to 35%. But there, I mean, the, the speed uh is slower because uh we have to make, we have to prepare essentially. The substitution of Russian gas with other gas or by saving gas It's just much, much more complicated. It will take longer. The current plans are that if there's no disruption, we will be out of gas consumption by the summer of 24, mm-hmm. right? Um so we will need. Roughly two years. Yes, um, that's the that's situation. So I think overall, I mean, my perspective is that um, Germany fully participated in all sanction packages. Also, this oil embargo, uh, which you know, it first was hesitant. Now it basically subscribed to the oil embargo. So I think Germany was an active participant in all sanction packages. But with gas, it chose a different strategy. And the, I would call it adaption without physical scarcity. That's the way I think about it. We made sure gas will keep flowing. We do our best to basically um, substitute Russian gas, but we cannot do it uh, basically from one day to the other. So all these calls for Disruptive immediate embargoes, I think, was politically never really feasible to do that, right? Uh, and the, that's yes, where we are right now.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I see your point on oil and gas and the differentiation between the two. Uh, but exactly because of the centrality of uh, oil and gas, uh, there are many commentators today who put some kind of blame on Germany in a way that, you know, building up this dependency, on Russian oil and especially gas, um, including Nord Stream 1 and 2, uh, Germany is is somehow responsible for empowering Russia, for preparing, even preparing Russia, giving them revenue, which um, has been used in order to build up uh, the military uh, capacity. So somehow this question of responsibility, in a way, a guilt appears in uh, the discourse around uh, the war. How would you respond? Uh, to this uh, discourse? No, well, I mean, in hindsight, German energy policy
0: has been wrong and has been fatally wrong and has been very naive because we basically thought this principle uh, change through trade. In German, it's called Wandel durch Handel, um, that this will apply also to to Russia. Basically, by uh, having this mutual dependency um, with Russia, we kind of have an impact on Putin and basically make him subscribe to our values and make him sort of a member of, let's say the Western European mindset, right? And this has utterly failed, uh, that's not clear. And basically, in hindsight, it's easy to say we should have conducted a different energy policy. And Mm -hmm. well, in hindsight, I agree, right? Um, There have been many mistakes that that have been made. But the question is basically, how do we respond now in the current situation? What do we do about it, right? As I said, I think the answer to go for a disruptive, immediate gas embargo would be the wrong answer. Because the disruptions in the German economy would just be too large, frankly. And
1: consequently, the European one.
0: And consequently, the European one. I think basically, the West uh, cannot afford... Basically, to have uh, Germany go into a deep recession, and as a consequence, the European Union going into a deep recession, right? I think that's no one's nobody's interest in the West, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the, obviously, the uh, the the answer must be now in the medium term. I'm not talking about the long term, about the medium term. But with medium term, I mean let's say within two or three years to really leave uh, Russian energy imports and leave it for good, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. basically now rethinking the strategy and we're now discussing about uh, building up three LNG terminals in Germany, something which we haven't done in the past, but what we should have done. Now we're doing it and we're really rushing that they uh, basically start operation already at the beginning of 2023. But in the medium term, I mean, this will be a booster for renewable energy. That's clear, right? So basically, all the plans that the coalition government had for basically speeding up renewables, green energy, and all of that, right? I mean, that will receive an additional booster. Um, And so basically, the, the way I think about it is that we're now leaving Russian energy as quickly as possible, and we will never come back. So we will substitute it with LNG gas, in the medium term, we'll substitute it with renewables. That's the, the way I think about it. And this is basically the consequence of this war. Um, but I mean, the situation we're in right now with this high dependency, obviously, I mean, there's nothing to excuse. I mean, that was uh, basically a mistake that German politics have done and basically from all parties, Social Democrats, but also this, the Christian Democrats, CDU. Um, the- they, they, all, they all were basically happily um, subscribing to the cheap Russian energy. I mean, the only party that raised concerns were the Greens, right? And they were right in hindsight.
1: Okay, I think uh, what you're saying rhymes uh, with the ambition of the European Union to double down on the Green Deal and make it even faster to go towards renewable energy. Uh, If you don't mind, I would like to go back uh, just for a second to what you highlighted, the risk of a recession. Uh, Can we perhaps quantify a little bit what the implications of a sanctioned regime, a a deep economic warfare, especially if it's rushed. Uh, would be on German competitiveness or European competitiveness or the potential of the European economy to grow. So what can we say about this um, in the current circumstances?
0: Well, I mean, there have been various studies about um, the potential impact of a full embargo on the German economy. I mean, the first study that appeared uh, came up with very small numbers uh, with a baseline scenario of just half a percentage point of GDP loss coming from an embargo, but that was under very idealized circumstances. So the substitution potentials were, I believe, overestimated, uh, especially for the very short term. And I mean, that study basically uh, rested on the assumption that fiscal policy, monetary policy responds in an optimal way and provides all sorts of bailouts and cushions for the economy. And this is kind of difficult to envision in the current subject because we're coming out of a recession. We just had the corona pandemic, a deep recession, basically now going back, going to big bailouts for German industry, short-term work schemes and all of that. I mean, it's difficult to see because we're basically coming out of a scenario where we have had all of that and going into another recession very quickly again, which would just be, I think, overburdening the economy. So I really cannot assume that uh, we will have optimal policy responses all along the way. And then all of these discussions basically were just for Germany. Um, so the first study said just a half a percentage point. Now various studies have appeared. They are more in the ballpark of uh, 3%, 5%, 8%, some studies say it says even 12% GDP loss, so much more dramatic. I think the honest question is nobody really knows what it will be because we have no idea in such a disruptive scenario, how quickly we actually achieve the substitution of German industry. Um, I mean, now, basically, if we do it now, it would maybe be less dramatic than we, if we had done it immediately uh, end of February or beginning of March. But as I said, I think, um, I mean, this discussion is over now. So Germany will not impose a, a gas embargo. I'm pretty clear mm-hmm. about that. But I mean, the impact, the discussion just focusing on Germany is a bit, I think, too um, too limited. Mm-hmm. Because if we imposed an embargo, it would be a European thing. It would have been yeah. a, a, an EU decision. And that means all the EU would face the consequences. And that means also countries like Italy, for example, with high debt levels already. Um, other countries in Eastern Europe, Hungary, for example, which is even more <laughs> reliant on, on Russian energy flows. I mean, there you would also have to go with this assumption that you have an optimal policy response at the EU level. So that means you would basically have to orchestrate something like the recovery fund for the corona pandemic at the eu level come up with something like that immediately again uh, to orchestrate an optimal policy response also for highly adapted countries like italy like greece um, and i think this is just very difficult if we are actually able to pull that off in the very short term right that's mm-hmm. that was my concern
1: yes thank you very much uh, you mentioned that germany and probably also other countries are leaving the oil and gas imports for good and that's the medium term objective to leave this behind and turn to different sources of energy but does this leave us with um, basically no serious economic relations with uh, russia in the future so can we completely forget about uh, an economic cost politic and um, you assume that there would be a kind of economic iron curtain Uh in the future
0: yeah well i mean i think that
1: depends how this war will end,
0: right? Uh, We don't know, obviously, but let's say as long as Putin is in power or Putinism doesn't have to be the person, right? It could be another Putin being the successor, right? Mm -hmm. I think in such a scenario, we cannot seriously consider building up economic relationships again, right? So, I mean, basically Putin has transformed Russia into a big North Korea already. I mean, basically the, the, the economy, the Russian economy um, has been thrown back by 20 30 years already right And as long as Putinism is in power, I think there needs to be some sort of iron curtain because we would need to make sure that I mean he wouldn't continue with his war machine right let's say mm-hmm. if, he, if he succeeds, if he succeeds in the in the Ukraine, I mean, there will be the next wars coming up, maybe in the Baltic states, maybe in Georgia, maybe in Moldova, we don't know, maybe even in Poland, right? Who who knows about that, right? So I think the first priority, uh, if Putin stays in power, would be to, to actually build up this this iron curtain. Now, in a different scenario, right, let's say the Ukraine succeeds in the war, there's regime change in Russia, there's basically a transformation, and there's a European-friendly democratic government in Moscow. I mean, we all hope that this scenario... Will become realistic one day, right? Ambitious. It's ambitious, right? Then, obviously, we would have the interest of basically building up economic uh, relationships again, mm-hmm. also to avoid a scenario where we have a paria state uh, in yes. Europe, which will basically a uh, danger to uh, peace and stability, right? Uh, 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 right. So, I, I can see all of that scenarios, right? So, my my point on that would be. First, um, we need to know what happens to Putin. Like, as long as Putinism is in power, we cannot uh, come back to economic relationships, right? Once there is a change, maybe not like a full change to democracy, but something in between, I mean, I think we could um, Mm -hmm. slowly try to build up economic relationships again, but then I think not in the energy sector. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, our long-term objective is the transformation to renewables. So we were basically planning to leave all fossil fossil energy uh, sources by 2045 or 2050, right? So basically, the the, the long-term plan was to let Russian energy flows go completely anyway, right, Um, and go to renewables. And I think this strategy is still correct. And then we don't need Russian gas uh, in the long term. So basically, I think it would be a mistake to then, in the medium term, go back to Russian energy, right? That would be an utter mistake because now the decision has been made to build energy LNG terminals, three of them, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, mean, that will not work this business model if a return to cheap Russian pipeline gas is always a possibility. I mean, who would be willing to build up an LNG terminal when there's this possibility that within five years we tell them, okay, thank you, but we don't need your LNG gas anymore. We go back to cheap Russian pipeline gas, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That will not work. So, I mean, I think we have to go all in on that now, right? Go basically for LNG as a bridge technology, but in the long term, basically go for 100% renewables uh, as quickly as possible. Mm. And then basically, um, if we go back to economic relationships with, with Russia, it can be something else, right? So they have other commodities, palladium, for example, things we need for wind and solar energy, right? So these type of commodities. Mm-hmm. or other types of economic relationships in science, technology. There are many things, right? But
1: let me say this. I mean, having options is not necessarily bad. Um, I mean, uh, on the example of my own country, Hungary uh, built up um, an Adriatic pipeline in the 1980s, which for very long was not used at all. And then suddenly, when these options came, it, it started to be useful. So in the long run, um, to maintain options, but because this was definitely a long run, uh, yeah. issue, which only uh, worked out uh, after 15, 20 or even more years, I don't know exactly. Oh. I think we, we discussed Russia quite deeply, but why don't we shift our attention to Ukraine? Uh, because the approach is obviously exactly the opposite. As long as there is a war, Europeans want to extend humanitarian aid, military aid, financial aid, and also afterwards, uh, we are preparing not only for reconstruction, But the discussions go as far as the vision of EU membership for Ukraine, how you see the potential, uh, the possibilities of deepening trade relations, integrating Ukraine in the broader European economic or political architecture?
0: Hmm. That's another speculative question because it will depend a big time on how this war will end. But I mean, the Ukraine has filed for EU membership. I mean, it will not happen very quickly, but uh, in the medium term, I mean, this is definitely a scenario. So for example, I mean, I could see a scenario where um, the east of Ukraine, the Donbass region, in a sense, maybe splits from Ukraine and we have independent uh, regimes there, Russia-friendly, russia um, and then the west of Ukraine basically um, goes for maybe even full EU membership. right? I mean, that's at least a scenario that that looks not too implausible, right? And in that case, I mean, we have a vital interest in rebuilding uh, Ukraine and building up, you know, the maximum amount of economic uh, relationships, right? I mean, obviously, strategically, it will be will be difficult because we will then have a direct border um, between the EU and uh, and, and Russia or let's say the, the, the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, but I mean, this is a scenario that, that that I can envision. But I think very important is we must leave that decision to the Ukrainian people, right? I think this is really a big danger that now the strategists uh, in, in Western Europe, that they decide on the fate of the Ukraine, right? Um, this is, I think, we should be very, very cautious uh, making making such strategies basically above the, over the heads of the Ukrainian people. Mm-hmm. They have to decide on the future of their country.
1: Yes. Can we at least um, already prepare for reconstruction? Because um, as we are speaking today, obviously, we don't know exactly when the war would end. But as soon as the war ends, somehow with an armistice or with a peace agreement, Europe will have to be ready for uh-huh. leading The reconstruction, not only participating uh, in it and uh, not only the distant perspective of membership, but the reconstruction itself will require a massive concentration of resources. How, in your view, trade policy, investment policy, uh, public and private resources, um, uh, you know, organized uh, in some kind of coordinated effort, uh, can play a role in order to ensure that this reconstruction effort brings you know, visible results within uh, a short while. And then again, what is short and what is medium term uh, can be discussed. So, I mean, the
0: reconstruction of Ukraine is one key aspect, but I think it's part of a wider agenda that the European Union will have to face uh, after the end of this war. I think there are so many implications of the new situation geopolitically, right? I mean, we have to basically come up with a new energy strategy, uh, a double down on the Green Deal, we have to reconsider the geopolitical realities that, you know, um, relationship with China, new trade relationships, um, building up the future of globalization, all of that. And I think the lesson is that uh, Europe needs to become more independent um, military, in, a, in a military aspect. We cannot only rely on the U.S. Uh, to provide security. And we, we also need to be more, um, let's say, I wouldn't call it independent, but we have to reduce the dependency on other critical components, um, critical infrastructure, um, things like uh, semiconductors, for example. We cannot just rely all of that to be imported from China. So what I'm saying is we need a new strategy for industrial policy and energy policy at the European level. And that will require massive uh, resources, public money and also private money. Um, so we need kind of an investment strategy at the European level, um, an industrial policy strategy. And basically the reconstruction of uh, Ukraine is part of that, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But it's a wi- it's a wider agenda we will have to face. And basically I think um, the blueprint is this uh, recovery fund after the pandemic, um, that instrument, which seems to work quite well. Um, so basically this... Um, centralized common European fiscal policy uh, to solve the pandemic. I think we will need something like that um, basically for Green Deal, industrial policy, energy strategy, and by extension, also reconstruction of the Ukraine. Um, I think we just need to uh, realize that we, we, we have to make big reforms of the architecture of the European Union, broadly speaking, right? It's not a task that we can just solve, you know, the member states can solve by themselves. I think we need to have a joint strategy at the EU level and also basically a joint instrument of fiscal policy to provide the funding uh, for, for, um, for this big
1: initiative. Uh, But do you see the necessary debate already ongoing, because uh, if this parallel holds, and probably it does, just like in the case of the corona, uh, we need some kind of strengthening also of the EU fiscal capacity. The corona recession with the next generation EU resulted in about 80% increase in the fiscal capacity of uh, the European Union as compared to the conventional uh, budget with its, um, you know, one percent per GNI glass ceiling, and there is an ongoing debate on fiscal rules in the EU, which um, I think everybody understands in a way that there is no return to the pre-Corona times with the the overall fiscal framework, you highlighted the importance of some kind of industrial policy, which also connects with the question of competition in uh, the European Union. So how you see evolving uh, the, let's say, economic governance under a new period of strategic autonomy, um, where where it can go in the foreseeable future?
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, there are two avenues that we could take. I mean, we could continue with the debate about uh, fiscal rules for the member states, like debt break, the mastery criteria and all of that. Um, but I think that is a discussion that will, you know, we, we have had this discussion for decades. And there's the, the possibility that it would just lead to nowhere, right. So the alternative uh, would be to say, uh, well, maybe let's leave the national fiscal rules as they are, but let's be become serious about the common EU fiscal policy, let's say, let's say a recovery fund 2.0, let's say for climate policy, industrial policy. And basically the attachment to the EU budget, um, I mean, that was already right there, right? I mean, the, the recovery fund is in a sense backed by the EU budget. And I think to me, this looks like the more promising way to go forward. And it's like a new discussion, right? It's not like this old discussion about the national fiscal rules and so on. So politically, it it may be easier to go along that way. And I think it it just corresponds to the geopolitical realities, right? I mean, Europe has to um, speak with one voice in all of these aspects, military, security, industrial policy, and that it should also speak with one voice um, in terms of fiscal policy.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm afraid we don't have um, uh, time for a longer discussion today, but I'm really grateful for your insight regarding um, the nature of the debate, uh, especially in Germany, about uh, the evolving sanction regime and um, where it can go um, in terms of economic relations with Russia, but also the help and assistance and support uh, the European Union can provide to uh, Ukraine as a country and the people of Ukraine. And uh, I think the conclusion that uh, this dramatic uh, war in Ukraine also Mm -hmm. triggers further changes and evolution of uh, the European economic architecture is also something which we can keep uh, discussing in the future. But um, for today, I would like to thank you for your um, uh, availability and uh, these extremely useful ideas. Um, I think you will learn a lot about the German perspective And um, obviously, Germany is, um, uh, is, let's be honest, the strongest economy in the European Union, which is not only geographically very central, but also uh, financially and otherwise, will remain um, a central uh, stage for uh, these discussions, Um, but um, we will in fact, do as much as possible to bring these discussions to Brussels and connect uh, the national debates and the EU-level debates. And we count on your presence and support um, also uh, for the further chapters of this discussion. Uh, Professor Zidekum, thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much, my pleasure.
1: I wish, um, I I, I believe our listeners um, also find it interesting, and they will remain with Fed Stokes also in the future. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag #FepsTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.